Hashtag Never Alone with Joe and Mark. Hi everyone and welcome to Hashtag Never Alone Season 2 Episode 12. I'm your lived experience host Joe Ambridge. And I'm Joe's co-host, psychotherapist and relationship counsellor Mark Fielding. Um, and today's topic is mental health first aid. Um, and we will be joined to, today by a special guest. We have Han- Hannah Buckland. Thank you for joining us, Hannah. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you, Joe. Just tell us a little bit about your background in relation to mental health and um, mental health first aid. Sure. So um, my my experience, I have my own experience of um, uh, mental ill health when I was younger, experiencing bouts of depression and also experiencing times where um, my eating was quite disordered in my teenage years. Uh, and that was quite a lonely experience, actually, when you're a teenager, because lots of people are expecting you to be having lots of fun. And I didn't always feel like I was having as much fun Uh, as I could be having and also didn't really have the support um, that would definitely be expected now in in schools and and is available now in schools as well people understanding much more about young people's mental health Um, and I guess some of those experiences led me to working with young people so in my early 20s I was working with young offenders I was working with uh, young people uh, at the sort of on the at-risk uh, uh, registers, so children on child protection um, uh, registers, children in the care system, so I would advocate for children in their uh, deprivation of liberty reviews if they were sectioned under the Mental Health Act, I'd advocate for children in um, child protection case conferences, uh, I'd write the reports for the police on missing children as well, um, and that was really interesting work and it really opened my eyes to mental health and well-being uh, with young people and the support services that were out there. And in that work, I trained as a mental health first aider. So that was a really important thing for me to do when I was an advocate to actually understand much more about how we can support young people and direct them to appropriate um, professional care and also how they can we can encourage people to look after their own mental health and well-being. Uh, But then I also um, spent quite a bit of time working in the corporate sector as well, for lots of different reasons, but recognised that many of us in our workplaces are experiencing times of mental distress, mental ill health. And I trained again as a mental health first aider quite a number of years after training as a mental health first aider working with young people. I retrained then to be a mental health first aider working with adults. And really kind of set about trying to support my colleagues within the workplace environment. And I have such a passion for people being kind to each other and for people looking after each other uh, and for self-care and for people to be aware of that there is hope there for recovery from mental ill health, that we must be compassionate and kind to ourselves, but also to each other in the workplace, out in communities, wherever we are. That's my passion that we all have that understanding that if we are a bit kinder to ourselves and to each other then the world would be a much healthier happier place um and it was actually the the head and head of health and safety at a large company who said to me look han this really is your this is your passion like this is your bag why are you not talking more openly and um to a wider audience about this um why are you not a trainer for example in mental health first aid and i thought oh (laughs) why am i not a trainer um, in mental health first aid and that really set about 
um, becoming a trainer, uh, which was incredible. And I did the training about three years ago now um, with Mental Health First Aid England, and it was a fantastic experience. And I met some other brilliant instructors, who some of whom I've continued to work with. Um, and in doing that training, uh, I then started working with the NHS and training doctors, nurses, midwives, people from the admin teams, people from occupational health, um, you name it, every department of um, the NHS, uh, but also working with companies up and down the country. So line managers, especially being more aware of what mental health is and how they can support their, the people that work with them in their teams watching out for those early warning signs, spotting those signs and symptoms, and really being having that confidence and ability to start really important conversations with people um, from a place of kindness and compassion. That's where, for me, that's where it's always got to come from, non-judgmental, kind and compassionate, and asking people, how can we, as a workplace, support you uh, and um, yeah, so that then also led me into doing the training uh, to be a suicide first aid instructor as well. So I deliver a full suite of training products for Mental Health First Aid England, but I also deliver half day and full day training in um, suicide first aid. So very much focused on bringing somebody from a place of danger and isolation to a place of safety and support. And that's incredible. Um, and I was selected to be part of a very small group of instructors to work with um, the gambling operators around um, gambling related harms as well so I'll be delivering that uh, from the new year which will be really good so yeah that's in a little nutshell that's awesome yes I'm really I mean just you know there's a lot there and but just looking at your journey and I mm. think you know it's a journey probably shared by a lot of people in you know in, in the mental health field you know yeah. I've gone with experiencing their own difficulties with mental health um early on and and then you know that leading them into wanting to help others and wanting to learn more i mean it's i guess the two things often sit side by side don't they the self-healing and then the yes. shifting into healing others and that seems like it's been a big part of your journey yeah absolutely and i think it's going from that place of feeling like i know that i need something from somebody as a teenager but you don't have the words to say what you need and you don't know what you need you need somebody to wrap their arms around you and say things will be okay, rather than toughen up. And I, I went to a, a, a fantastic school. Um, I was very, very fortunate to go to the school that I went to. And actually the brilliant thing is that I have trained teachers now from that school um, and from the wider trust of schools as well. So I know that they are doing brilliant work with the young people. But back, we're talking about the early 90s, like 1991, 1992, where we didn't talk about mental health in our schools or in our communities or in our workplaces, really. I don't think anyone was really talking about it back then. And so having that sense of, um, if somebody had reached out to me and knew how to respond to me, um, that would have made a huge difference at certain times of my life. But actually what I heard through most of my teenage years and into my early 20s was you have to toughen up. You have to toughen up. And it got to the stage where I said to myself, Hannah, actually, you just need to be you. And it was that switch of thinking, show yourself kindness, be grateful for the attributes that you have and the empathy that you have and the compassion that you have and stop this pressure of having to toughen up. And that was so liberating 
it was brilliant. <laughs> um, and it doesn't, it's not that I didn't have kind, wonderful people in my life. I did. I had lots of support from people around me, but definitely people did not talk about mental health. Whereas now we're in that position where we can reach out to say to somebody, it's okay, I'm here for you. How can I help you? Have you heard of X, Y, and Z that can support you through this difficult time? But also for me, one of the biggest things to talk about is recovery. Because one of the things that I think happens is we think that there isn't recovery for mental ill health. So we just don't talk about it for the fear that if we have a mental illness, for example, that's it forever. And that becomes who we are. And that isn't the case. You know, for the vast majority of people, recovery is possible, recovery is likely. And that's what we need to get to, you know, we need to encourage people to know that actually if we start on this journey of recovery, that's brilliant. This is gonna be really positive. And actually for some people, recovery might not take a huge amount of time. Lots of different factors obviously go into people's recovery journeys and it will be different for everybody, but it's there. That hope for recovery is absolutely there. Yeah, so I bang on about that quite a bit actually in my training. Yeah. <laughs> Mental health is definitely a journey. I definitely agree with that. Um... Yeah. And I agree with what you said about a lot of people in that year, that, that era of stuff, especially when I was young as well. Like, I, I was born in the 90s and during school, I didn't know anything about mental health or anything. Like, maybe the odd thing here there, I'd hear about maybe depression and suicide, but didn't know anything about mental health and there was nothing in my school to support any of the stuff. I, I was bullied all through school as I mm -hmm. talk a lot about it on the podcast and I never had that support. Like, it took especially high school, it took until I got to year 10. I'm originally from England myself. Um, it took till I got to year 10 for them to expel the person that would bully, was bullying me. Um, but like, it was just crazy, like the differences, like there wasn't that support the teachers would talk to him, but they wouldn't expel him, You'd get suspended for a few days and they just carry it, keep on doing the stuff he did. Um, but however, like when I went to college, it was a lot different. Like it wasn't really bullying, but it was seen as bullying because I went through all this stuff and all this drama with someone that used to be friends with over a girl um, who made like a hate group about me on Facebook. Um, so I reported it and said to the school, look, he's done all this stuff. I, I wasn't intimidated by him or scared of him or anything. Like if I knew I could handle myself if I needed to. But they were like, oh, if you need, to, we can report it to the police if you need, want us to. But like the difference between my college dealing with the bullying and then this my the schools that I went to was such a vast difference like I had so much more support in college than I did in school and yeah. I think I uh, obviously had a lot of mental health issues a lot earlier than I actually realized and was diagnosed with mm. yeah. yeah and um uh, I I it, I do reflect sometimes to think had social media been around when I was at school what negative impact would that have had on me? And I think it would have been quite significant. I mean, I left school without even having an email address or a mobile phone because um, I was born in the 70s. Uh, so by the time I left school, there wasn't, we didn't have all of that tech. Well, some people had mobile phones, I guess, but I definitely didn't. Um, but that extra added pressure of social media on young people nowadays is huge, isn't it? Mm. It's yeah, really worrying. I didn't have it didn't have it at all maybe year 10 year 11 Facebook was a thing we had all like stuff like MySpace and Bebo yeah. but I never really was on it I didn't really bother with it a lot of the time apart from maybe MSN that was probably about it when I was little mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so it's just another layer, isn't it? I guess the social media is just another layer of pressure, you know, on young young people. I mean, if it's okay, and we're, we're going to move around a little bit, because you yeah. have so much experience in different areas. I wanted to kind of link what you were saying around lack of support in schools to lack of support in organisations. Mm. I mean, my experience at school, you know, back in the Stone Age when I was at school, you know, there was no talk of mental health and there was no support for people at all, period, none. You know, that that is changing now. But I want to link it into organisations. And I worked in the NHS for 20 years and I think things are changing. I haven't worked there for a few years now, but mm. I, I do think that, you know, even though it's a caring organisation, this, of course, is my own personal opinion and mm. what I experienced, but, you know, I, I felt the support really for staff in the NHS could have been better. And I guess the mental health first aiding, within kind of NHS organisations is there to potentially address that and provide yeah. some help for people? Yes. Now, mental health first aid is amazing, but it's not everything. There needs to be a lot more that goes on in organisations than solely relying on having mental health first aiders to respond when people may be showing signs of depression or anxiety or even actually experiencing thoughts of suicide. So it's part of the package of well-being that organisations like the NHS and like lots of organisations across the country um, are doing and need to do. Partly the, the reason I love mental health first aid is it raises people's awareness of what mental health is and what it isn't. It dispels myths. So people actually um, learn so much about themselves and so much about mental health that they might not have ever had the opportunity to experience. And things like reducing stress, looking after yourselves. So the NHS that trust that I train is amazing. And they their aim is to have 10% um, of their organisation trained in mental health first aid, which is brilliant. And it matches up with the target that Mental Health First Aid England have to have one in 10 of the adult population trained in mental health first aid skills. So it's definitely part of the package and it's brilliant. So, so far I've trained over 350 employees for one NHS trust uh, and they are doing fantastic work. They are supporting each other. They are talking about mental health within their teams. They're talking about what support is available to them. They're real advocates of mental health support and well-being and self-care. And they're definitely people that we can um go to and say actually do you have any uh support networks you can introduce to me for myself or for my daughter or for my husband it's not always the nhs employee actually it's people that they love and care about too that actually they can use mental health first aid as a, as a sounding board but the other packages that we see being put into place is things like we have a fantastic chaplaincy service in our nhs trust which has always been there but it's again, it's for our mental health first aiders to really champion those people and the work that they do and the support that they can give. We're also very fortunate in our NHS trust to have a team of clinical um, psych um, uh, psychologists who are there purely for staff, which is brilliant, isn't it? They don't have a caseload of um, from the general population. They are there to support staff. They're there to, to support with debriefs after um, perhaps there's been a, a you know a traumatic event within the hospital or you know a tragic incident take place. Um, so that uh, certainly our NHS trust is putting in a lot of money into staff wellbeing, and a lot of that was already happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic definitely pushed it further forward faster than we perhaps would have seen. That's just from my understanding of how it's all panned out. 
Um, and so employee well-being is really at the, the core of um, at the core of what they do. But other organizations as well are really, really getting on board with actually we want to support our team. We we want them to be healthy, recognizing that mental health is part of our overall health. You know, we are very aware of supporting people when they are physically unwell, but when people become mentally unwell to varying degrees, how can we as organizations keep them safe in the workplace? Or if they do need time off work, how are we keeping in touch with them? When they're coming back into the workplace, how are we bringing them back in safely? How are we making sure that they are well and looked after? Um, so again, mental health first aid is part of that, that training that we do for line managers and the training that we do for people throughout, you know, kind of like a cross section of an organization. Um, we can have mental health first aiders from, you know, all, all areas of organizations and from all different pay scales. It has to be, it has to be a mixture of uh, people that are represented within the business, but certainly line managers need much more understanding if they don't feel that they understand what mental health is and how they can support people, then the training is really important. And it, it can be just a day, it can be just half a day, but it can make a huge difference on how they are as leaders. I mean, I really love the sound of like, with, with with the trust you, you're talking about and the yeah. focus on well-being. I mean, it's so important and so multi-layered. Yeah. You know, it's not just one thing. You know, it is just a real kind of, I don't know, just embracing of, you know, kindness and compassion for employees yes. and, you know, increasing conversations around mental health. And I'm also thinking, you mentioned kind of line managers a few, time, a few times. I'm a quite a big fan of um, Dan Goldman, and he writes a lot about, I don't know if you've ever read any of his work, but he writes about compassionate leadership. Yes. And I think leadership models uh, are perhaps changing from, you know, past models that perhaps were, you know, in some organisations based on fear to mm -hmm. models of compassion and kindness. And because that actually incorporations, that, that increases the bottom line, right? If staff are happy yes. and they're mentally well, yeah. then they're going to work better. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've seen that in the, you know, the FTSE 100 companies, the ones that talk about mental health, well-being uh, and support for their staff in their end of year reports are seeing higher profits than people that don't talk about yeah. mental health and well-being in their end of year reports. It's really I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to me. If you have if you have a happy, healthy workforce, they are going to be more productive. Um, and like you say, I've worked for people who are very compassionate and kind, and they have got the best version of me because that's what I respond to. I'm a really hardworking person. I don't let people down, but I need to feel like I'm being cared for and looked after. Um, if somebody were to be one of the leaders that's um, on the other end of that kindness spectrum, you're going to get a very anxious me and you're not going to get the best out of me and I probably won't stay very long and so then it's all the cost of replacing me um and retraining somebody else it just to me it makes perfect sense but um hopefully it's starting to make perfect sense to more people around the world seems like there's so. a lot more now like even when we spoke with my friend Will a couple of episodes ago he was saying they have a a special day or something to check in like a mental health check-in thing at work um, yep. And then they have like a day off, day off, I think he was saying. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of stuff in, in place to help support their well-being and their mental health if they're struggling with stress and stuff, just yep. to make sure that they can work without the stress. And if they do have the stress, it's being handled. Um, yeah. And I, I started a new job recently. And like, it's crazy. I've been through a few different jobs 
and the job I'm working at the moment because I do contact tracing and I call um calling people mm. and stuff about having COVID or clearing them and stuff so we get a lot of challenging calls sometimes um and I've had to take personal days here and there where my man, my I've had bad depression but like the team leaders are so understanding and they get that mental health is just as bad as having being sick normally yeah. and they're like mental health your mental health is, my team leader said to me the other day your mental health is important you need to take the time off take the time off let us know when you need to come back don't don't make things worse for yourself um yeah. and my team leader literally zoom called me the other day to check in to see how we're about to work like after having a personal day and my zoom my team leader zoom called me it's like oh i just wanted to check in see how you're going um yeah. how are you feeling if you need any extra support we can give you it um and I'm quite lucky as well that I've got, I'm registered with a company called Weiss and they help people with mental health and disabilities get work. And then they support you whilst you're in the job. Brilliant. So they do the fortnightly appointments to so check in to see how you're going. If you need to see a psychologist, they, they'll pay for you to see a psychologist. Wow. Um, That's really good. If you need to have physiotherapy, they'll pay for the physiotherapy. Just so handy to have that. And they give like your employees a wage subsidy as well to help have you on board mm. that's that sounds fantastic the the other thing that lots of companies have now is employee assistance programs which i'm a, a big fan of so you, so employees can access things like um uh counseling or debt advice or legal advice through the schemes that their employers put in place and those aren't always they're, they're often available, certainly for the large organisations, but they're not always um, talked about or promoted enough within companies for employees to know that that's available to them. So, yeah, I would always encourage employers to think, right, what do we offer and is it enough and do people know about it? Because not yeah. everybody knows about it. The other thing with stress in the workplace is that we all respond to stress differently. We all have a, a, our own sort of unique maximum capacity of how much stress we can manage. We all have our own size stress container and what's in our stress container, you know, people probably don't know when we go to work. And so work might be one element of our stress container, but there could be a whole load of other things that people in our workplaces are finding stressful in their lives that perhaps they haven't shared and don't need to share with their employers. But that one more change within the work environment or one more project that's been put on their to-do list and it becomes too much and people become overwhelmed. And we see that yeah. um, overflow, we call it emotional snapping. Uh, and then it's about knowing, well, how do we reduce those stress levels? And what can we do from a work perspective to reduce stress levels and make sure people are not working under unreasonable levels of stress? But also how are people um, reducing stress levels in terms of are they getting time out? Are they getting days off when they need days off? Are they resting? Are they? Do we have access to activities that are enjoyable to us? Um, and I do wonder how, at, certainly at the start of the pandemic, when people lost access to their gym, their swimming pool, their climbing wall, their five-a-side football team, those stress relievers that we had at a time that was very stressful, whether that actually exacerbated people's um, feelings of being unwell and, and perhaps days of being unable to cope. 
Yeah. But lots of companies put lots of things in place around making sure that their staff are actually leaving work or switching off at five o'clock or, you know, not working over the weekends, not feeling like they have to respond to emails over the weekends. And we all don't, we all work different hours these days because we can, there's a lot more flexibility, but it, that we need to be, um, make sure that we're not expecting um, certain members of our team to be kind of like on call to cover the whole different time scales of when everybody else is working. Some people might want to start at seven in the morning. Some people might want to finish at 10 o'clock at night, but actually the support teams that are looking after those people, perhaps in, in higher positions, they don't want to be answering calls and emails at 10 o'clock at night or at seven o'clock in the morning. So are we are we always being very mindful that the way we're working, the hours that we're working is not necessarily the way our teams are working. Yeah, I mean, I guess the more, the more you talk and the more I can see, you know, I mean, this is really a the work that you're doing. Mm. I mean, for the whole of society, for corporations, for, you know, for the public industry, this, this work is essential, isn't it? I mean, this yeah. can, when, when, when I, you know, when you talk about, you know, wanting the trust you work in, wanting, you know, the trust wants 10% of all employees, mm to be trained in mental first aid you know i hear that as amazing you know that can really open up conversations but it, but the organization you work for has a wider range that 10 percent of the whole population yes get i mean that is fantastic I yeah. mean, what a kind of mission statement it's brilliant yeah it is and it's not just in england you know mental health first aid actually started in australia back in 2001 by a lady called betty kitchener so it's been going mm. for a long time we've only had it in england since 2006 2007 um, so still, you know, we've, we've been going now for about 14 years, which is amazing. Um, but in Australia, it's been going for longer and it's delivered in mental health first aid is delivered in about 25 different countries and about 4 million people have been trained uh, in mental health first aid skills, which is just fantastic. So it's not just an England program, yeah. it's actually global. Yeah, I definitely noticed there's a lot more resources here for people with mental health than there were when I was living in England, like stuff like Wise, which is the company I'm registered with, help people with mental health and then find work and then support them during the time they're working mm -hmm. and then checking on them. Like, I, I don't ever remember there being anything like that when I was in London. Like, no. we just had the job centre and that was it. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask was, um, what sort of techniques and stuff do you teach these first aiders to help cope, uh, to help people cope? So we, we, all the training is around an action plan, which is called algae. So we, we teach this five step action plan. So the, the first step is A, which is our approach, thinking about how we're gonna approach somebody. What are we worried about? How is it, think about the time, think about the place. Is now the time to start a conversation with someone? Do we have the time? Because the last thing we want to do is approach somebody and say we're worried about them and then say, actually can we carry on this discussion at the end of the day because I've got to run off now you don't always have the opportunity to think about your approach because you know if somebody's having a panic attack right in front of you um it's you have to respond there and then so the first part is approach thinking about approach and then assessing for crisis actually thinking about is this person having thoughts of suicide are they self-harming are they experiencing a panic attack have they just experienced a traumatic event and how can we assist somebody? So I go through things like um, uh, suicide first aid. I run through 
how to ask that question, are you having thoughts of suicide? And the importance of that question. If we have little alarm bells ringing in our minds to think, actually, I'm not sure if this person is okay, how do we ask that question? And then if the person says, yes, I am having thoughts of suicide, what do we do then? So that's one element of our uh, crisis that we, we look at. We also think about things like panic attacks. If somebody's having a panic attack, what do they need? Well, they need us to be there for them. They need us to say, how can I help you? They need us to reassure them. We need to make sure that there is actually a panic attack and not something perhaps physical, such as a heart attack or an asthma attack. We need to be aware of that. But giving them that calm reassurance, bringing those anxiety levels down, staying with them, and then making sure afterwards that they're okay. So we run through all of those sorts of things as well. I also run through psychosis, how to support somebody who might be experiencing a psychotic episode, things that we need to consider, such as, um, again, that the person might be um, having uh, very un unwanted and very powerful thoughts. They might be seeing things, hearing things. How do we stay calm and kind and compassionate and what do we need to do? So we talk about emergency responses. We talk about things like the Stay Alive app, which is just a fantastic app, which I wish everybody had on their phones. Um, it's a suicide um, prevention and, and intervention app. Uh, it's got a blue hand and a yellow hand forming a heart. Uh, and it's got loads and loads of different crisis line numbers on there, even per area, the NHS mental health crisis line numbers for whatever area that you're in. It's also got some links to global uh, organizations as well. So it's a lot of it is um, uh, England and UK based, but it, it also has some um, global organizations as well on there. So that's our A, our approach, and then assessing for crisis and assisting in crisis. Then if somebody isn't in crisis, that's when we start, we listen. We've approached somebody, now let's listen. We've asked them how they are. If we now say, well, yeah, all of us are in the same boat, we're all stressed. Has that been supportive? Not at all. So thinking about listening skills. So we do lots of work around listening skills. And then it's our G, is our giving support and information. And giving support is as in being supportive showing kindness, giving hope for recovery, using our words to say to somebody that must have been really difficult. I'm so glad you told me. Maybe wrapping our arms around the person if that's appropriate. You know, this could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be a work colleague that we're very close to. Not always appropriate to go into somebody's personal space, of course it isn't, but how can we show support to that person? What do they need us to do for them? Um, and then our, the rest of our action plan is about encouraging professional help and encouraging other supports. So our first aiders know, they know about the occupational health team uh, within the NHS Trust, for example. They know about our employee assistance program. They know about the chaplaincy service. They know about people like the Samaritans, Shout, Papyrus for our under 35s, Campaign Against Living Miserably, which is a very male-focused helpline. They know about switchboard, they know about Silverline. We talk extensively about all of these different avenues for, for support. We also talk about things like IACT, which we have in England, improving access to psychological therapies. But also it's really important that mental health first aiders know that they are not there to diagnose, they are not there to be the counsellor, they are very much in that first aid capacity. It's about looking after that person and then helping them to access the professional help if that's needed, 
but also thinking about those other supports. It's not, you know, recovery from mental illness and recovery from times of being, um, you know, low. We all have times where we experience um, a depressed mood or times when we are stressed or anxious. Perhaps we go through a period of grief. Uh, perhaps we have experienced a time of unemployment. You know, there are times when all of us have difficulties where we need that additional support. Um, we need to think about who are the friends we reach out to? Who is the family that we reach out to? How are we kind to ourselves? And that's one of my biggest things that I say to people. How are you showing kindness to yourself? It's not about saying to somebody, you should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. That's not very helpful. And it can come across as really judgmental. But actually, are you giving yourself the rest that you need? Are you able to settle yourself down for a good night's sleep? And if you can't, what would help you with that? Are you able to get out, even if it's for five minutes, walk a day? Um, or, you know, are there things that you love to do, such as, you know, my favorite thing to do is to pop into the water in my kayak. It's amazing to just pop down into that water and feel that stillness. We all have different things, don't we, that we love to do. So really encouraging people to tap into those things. And that can be really difficult if you are experiencing time of very low mood or perhaps you are highly anxious. The thought of going for a walk or going for a run or meeting up with friends, perhaps some of those things are too big right now. So what are the little things that we can do? Is it to do with our routine? Is it to do with our nutrition? Is it to do with making sure that we are... Um, you know, just making sure we, we are connecting with people that, that, that keep us safe. And that's the other thing as mental health first aid is we can do is help people to write out um, crisis plans or, um, you know, wellness recovery action planning, or at least to have an understanding of those things to talk to people. You know, if somebody does experience multiple panic attacks, for example, have they actually written out somewhere what would help them if they were having a panic attack? Have they shared that with their line manager? So if it happened at work, people would know how to appropriately respond. So there's lots of tools that we talk about over the full two day course. So sometimes I run the course with people in the room with me for two full days. Otherwise I do it online over four sessions and we cover each little little bit um, in quite a lot of detail. Yeah, I mean, wow, it's, uh, it's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? I mean, you cover so much with, with your mm -hmm. training. I mean, just to pick up on one part, because there's so much you know, there in what you've just said, but in terms of the mental health scaffolding, I guess that's the kind yeah. of, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I kind of work with a lot of clients and, and I think this is probably true with a lot of the population that they don't actually have the scaffolding in place for their mental health. You know, they might have, you know, kind of physical health scaffolding. They might go to the mm -hmm. gym or they might, which is also good for mental health, yeah. of course. But in terms of isolating and really understanding the things that perhaps are going to help you if you do them regularly every week in yeah. order to really, really support your mental health. I mean, that is a, is a really, really important conversation yeah. and one that you have as part of mental health first aid and also the self-compassionate piece. I mean, that's yeah. something you've mentioned a few times and yeah, Pete, I mean, that's a growth area for a lot of people, right? Yes. I mean, self-compassion is massively important to mental health. Yeah. It's absolutely huge. And until we can show ourselves that kindness and compassion, I believe it's very difficult to show other people kindness and compassion. It, it, we, we need to at least be on our journey of showing ourselves kindness before we can really genuinely be compassionate towards other people. 
And I always encourage mental health first aiders from whatever walk of life I'm training. And I, I train the NHS, but I also train a vast number of different people. So I could be with super yacht crew one week. I could be with an insurance company another week. I could be with a construction company the next week. It's just so varied, which is fantastic. But I always say to people, this role is um, to support others, but it's also about looking after yourself. And part of that that's really important is to know when to step back from this role. If you're a mental health first aid and within an organization and you yourself are going through a difficult time, take a step back if you want to. It, your well-being is number one. And all organizations who have mental health first aiders um, should really embrace that, that if somebody says, just for the next three months or six months, I'd like to take a step back from being a mental health first aider because they are looking after their own mental health and well-being. that should always be supported. So within our NHS trust, we obviously have a list of people down as mental health first aiders on the internet, but people also have a green ID card holder rather than a blue one. So when you see people walking around hospitals, their ID badges are often on their NHS lanyards and a blue ID card holder and I give out the green ones to our mental health first aiders it's a subtle sign for people to know as they're walking around the hospital that that person is a mental health first aider but I always say don't get rid of your blue one because you can switch it back at any time that's really important yeah just a touch on what you mentioned earlier about um saying the right thing to people kind of don't um say stuff like oh this is what you can do. Um, uh, I've done this. Uh, actually, reminded me of something that I saw yesterday. Um, Mark showed me this person called Dr. Julie. I can't remember what her surname was. Um, but I follow her on Instagram. Uh, she's quite a she put quite a big following, and she shared this thing yesterday about what what not to say and what to say to someone that's depressed. If you know someone's depressed, mm. like don't say, "Oh, try this. I did this," or do this I did that make see what they want to do to make them yes. feel better and just like all these little tips and it was just really I shared it on my Instagram story because it was really I feel felt it was really important to share yeah it's that absolutely Joe it, it our own journeys will be totally different to other people's journeys the reasons why we become unwell will be different from each other and our recovery journeys will be different and I think it's really important to say to people perhaps what has helped you before if you have felt like this before what helped what do you think might help you now what are the things that you find really important and for some people bibliography will be something that's really important they might love reading self-help books they might love podcasts they might that might be part of their recovery journey for other people it might be that they take on running or take on cold water swimming for other people they might find a counselor who absolutely gets them and they really have a brilliant relationship with the counselor it will always be different for different people so that question of how can i help you or what do you think would help you. I think it's really important we should never make assumptions. The other thing I always say to my wonderful mental health first aiders is don't make assumptions that people don't know about their illness or their diagnosis. You know, they may well be the absolute experts on the symptoms that they're feeling. So ask them, what do you understand about your diagnosis? What do you understand about the symptoms that you're feeling? Um, and always listen to the person who is living that experience 
Yeah, I was kind of lucky. Um, my anxiety is not as bad as it was, but like back when I was getting really bad anxiety attacks and stuff and nights out, um, I had this, had this best friend. I'm still friends with her now. I've been friends for for years. She, I don't know what it was, but she always knew, and there was some, something quite right with me. Like if I was having anxiety attacks, she could tell straight away. Or if I wasn't myself, she'd know, and she'd know how to calm me down. I don't know what how she knew, but she just it was just like. She had this instinct that if there was something that was wrong with me, she knew what to do and knew when something was wrong. Yeah. And isn't it brilliant when we have friends like that and they can mm. perhaps sit with us and just be with us when we when we need them to be there? They don't even need to say anything, do they? Um, she tends to so ask me what I need to do to calm down or what I'm like if I'm in a pub, uh, I'm feeling anxious or I've got anxiety. She'll come outside with me or she'll come and sit with me or give me give me a hug and stuff just to kind of calm me down she always mm. just knew what to do and what to say it was just like oh, I don't know how she knew something was up so I'm normally quite yeah. a quiet person anyway so it's quite hard to tell if something's up like unless you really really know me it's hard to tell if something is up with me yeah she sounds like a brilliant friend oh, very very <laughs> good friend no, 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 we're running out of time, Han. But to, just to pick up one other thing that you, I guess you both said, really, the being seen. Yeah. You know, I mean, so as, as a therapist, you know, sometimes you will work with people, and, and that is really all they need. Yeah. You know, some people may not have been seen their whole lives. Yeah. You know, and just someone seeing them, whether that's a friend, whether that's a mental health first aider, whoever it is, chaplain, yeah. that yeah. can be massively therapeutic for someone. For someone just to really see them hear them and understand it's massive and can't be underestimated yeah. I don't think I think Mark that's so important um we acknowledge people's reality we acknowledge people's experiences where people want to share those experiences with us we listen and we respond by appropriately by acknowledging what they have said to us rather than what many people do and I'm sure I have done this many times in my life before I was much more aware of how to support people more effectively but we leap in with our own experience as a oh well I felt this when somebody shared something huge with us just take that moment to recognize what they have just shared with you rather than leaping in with um well I would have done this or I would you know I'd advise you to do that or when this happened to me actually just take that moment to see that person and hear them and acknowledge them it's it's incredibly powerful and it's something all of us can do um and if our listeners want to find you of any like businesses are listening are listening or any school teachers are listening where where would they find you or your business yeah, so I I um I have my own training company called Every Kind, and I came up with the name Every Kind because um, I want uh, every opportunity to be kind is basically where it comes from, and and every kind of person. That's that's my uh, company name. So my website is everykind.co.uk. So if people want to get in touch, they can they can find me on there, and that would be that would be great. Awesome. Um, and one thing we ask our guests um, in every episode: What's your favourite bit of advice for um, in regards to mental health? My my biggest thing and my biggest passion around mental health is self care. 
that's the, that is the thing that that uh, really for me underpins my own health and well-being. So having that understanding of how we can take care of ourselves, and that might look different in different times of our life when we are perhaps unwell versus when we are doing brilliantly, but knowing what works for us so that having that sense of how we can be kind to ourselves uh, and when I worked that out it was life-changing so that's my that's my favorite bit is self-care it's like the saying you've got to love yourself before you love others so it, yeah it works with relationships so if you get into a new relationship you don't love yourself it tends to not work out because you can't love the other person the way you should yeah. Yeah, um, and we need to treat ourselves like we treat our own best friends. You know, when our own best friends are having a bad day or they've messed up on something, what do we do? We embrace them. We show them kindness. We tell them that tomorrow will be better. And if we only treated ourselves like we treat our own best friends, that would be a lot healthier, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on, Hannah. We really appreciate you coming on. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will find it beneficial. Um, hopefully some of them contact you and um, make the move in the right direction um, mm, cool. and thank you Mark for having co-host um, any links you have just email them through and I'll share them when we post the podcast and um, thank you guys okay no good worries. to meet you Han thank you. thanks thank so you, much Mark. no Bye. worries if you or anyone you know has been affected by the topics discussed in today's episode or previous episodes please contact your local or country's helpline you'll find them by going to google and typing in helpline um smart they have samaritans suicide helpline but remember that you're not alone as the title of the podcast says um there are many other people like you that have got mental health issues and feel suicidal and feel alone but there's always someone there for you to talk to be it a friend a family member a stranger a psychotherapist or doctor there's someone to talk to i've been in that position before and talking to someone really does help it's okay to not be okay and i will see you in the next episode